The following message is from the 2017 IBCD pre-conference with Chris Moles on the topic of domestic violence. Well, I want to thank you guys. It's been a great, great day thus far. I've enjoyed teaching and I hope this has been beneficial. I know we've only scratched the surface. My prayer is that maybe some of you will... Um, maybe like me, uh, find your niche in this work and uh, be able to offer some help and some hope to perpetrators and victims along the way. Uh, one, uh, some of you were talking to me at the break. I thought this was a very good point to bring up um, because this is such a tricky diagnostic issue in some ways. Um, one of the couples brought up to me that as I was talking, they were thinking about one of their cases and they, were, they said they were seeing apples everywhere right? If you've got to really stretch to find the fruit on the tree, that's not what we're asking you to do. This stuff, as you get more and more engaged, it should become more and more clear that you're going, oh, that makes sense. Oh, that makes sense as you're putting those patterns together. When I talk about victim care, uh, one of the things that, you know, we do is we talk some about those landmines, those uh, traps, those issues that we talked about the last session. But I also like to talk about the victims of domestic violence that are kind of less known or maybe forgotten, and that's children. It's estimated, it's believed, and I think uh, sociologically they're beginning to show this, that children who witness domestic violence share many of the symptoms, developmental problems, that children who are the target of violence experience. And uh, I'm going to try to illustrate that some today as we talk a little bit about uh, the impact of abuse on children. Now, I, uh, I tend to do this when I talk. I didn't today because I know all of you came to hear this topic, so it's not like I was thrust upon you. Um, but this particular talk does carry some weight. If, if you're here and, and you've had about enough and you're a little wore out with the topic, um, or maybe you yourself have experienced violence or you did in the home as a child, no one's going to be upset or um, worried if you need to take a break. So we're going to be talking about children and we're going to be placing them kind of in the context of peril. And if that's just something that you're not equipped or positioned to handle right now, that's totally cool. Uh, No one here is going to judge you. Someone might even check on you. And if you need something, somebody might even be willing to pray with you. Isn't it great to be in a place where... We can do that. So feel free. If it gets to be too much, no one's going to be worried if you got to take a breather. All right. We've gone through all the definitions, so you guys should be uh, well-versed on those. I do like Luke 17 too. I know contextually it's a little problematic, but hey, um, it's got such a great imagery. I was, um, I was actually in Albania last year doing a conference on uh, domestic violence, and uh, we were taking this tour of this old town and I saw a millstone there and I took this picture because there was a little olive tree right beside it. It was a beautiful little picture and uh, it reminded me of that verse, you know, if you harm one of these, that it'd be better if you had a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the ocean. I mean, those suckers are huge. I mean, Flava Flav, you guys know, anybody? (laughs) Yeah, boy, like that size clock, but only weighing, uh, you know, 200 pounds or 500 pounds or whatever. Crazy. Uh, But that verse comes to mind as I think about this topic. Why is this important? I think in large part, this is important because of uh, how often children are experiencing this. Domestic violence is the most frequently occurring violence that children experience. 
One out of 15 kids are exposed to domestic violence and 90% of them are eyewitnesses to it. How many clicks does it take? There we go. Uh, Police encounter half a million children during domestic violence arrests in the U.S. every year. Whoops, too far, too far. It's going to start. Okay. And children exposed to domestic violence may experience many of the same symptoms and lasting effects as children who are direct victims of violence. So sociologically, there's some important issues. Now, we'll talk theologically here in a minute. But just the extent to which children are exposed to this problem is drastic and dramatic. And if you're anything like most churches and church people that I know, you probably love kids. And your church, maybe rightfully so, ministers to kids. I heard one of our children's leaders for our denomination recently She said, hey, I want to remind you as we minister to kids that they do not get a smaller version of the Holy Spirit. (laughs) But how wonderful, right? How wonderful that as children come to know the Lord, they have the same spirit living in them as as who's living in us. And um, not only are they children, but they're also uh, brothers and sisters at the same time. And yes, there's responsibility, but there's also something precious about them as the body of Christ. And yet we minister to children on a regular basis, many of which parents maybe not even come to our church that are living in situations that are equivalent to a war zone emotionally and developmentally. To try to illustrate this, and we'll see, I've got a couple videos here, so we'll, we'll see if we can uh, make these work. Sometimes we've got to hit and miss with it. But I want to introduce you to something that I do pretty regularly, and that's I'd like for you to listen to a 911 call. And the reason I chose this call, I did have to edit it. It's the least profane call I have. As you can imagine, situations like this, 911 calls can get pretty aggressive, and this one does not have any curse words unless I put the wrong one in. So please forgive me if a wordy dirt pops out. Um, but I'd like for you to listen to this child and then I'll tell you more about the story. This has been going on forever and ever. I believe the little girl in the video, I could be mistaken. I just talked to an advocate recently who knows her. I believe she was six or seven at the time that this recording was taken. Um, Pretty striking, isn't it? I I know it's shocking. Um, When I introduce material like this, especially to my biblical counseling friends, I do get people who are like, you know, Chris, I'm just not sure. Uh, this is so, such a rough situation. I have one recording. I can't share it with you, unfortunately, because of the profanity, but it's actually been given to me uh, permission to use by 
a victim that we served, her husband, who was a local pastor, um, would be abusive and go on a tirade uh, quite often. And her son began to record these. I have a couple hours of recordings, unbeknownst to him, that was eventually signed over to our training team that were so laden with profanity and um, control and coercion that I let some friends of mine, uh, counselors who were struggling with emotional abuse, say, Chris, I don't really get it, I don't get it. I said, can I play you five minutes of recording? And I played five minutes and the first thing that this one lady said, she said, well, of course that's emotional abuse. <laughs> because once you kind of experience and you kind of hear, in a counseling room, it can be sterile, can it? But in those moments, it's, it's visceral and it's painful. This was an actual 911 call. This young lady, um, it had been in her mind going on forever and ever. As a little girl, the, her entire life maybe had been uh, privy to this type of violence and aggression. Uh, by the way, uh, it had escalated, had it not? This had been going on forever and ever, but the little girl is frantically worried because he made red marks where? On his neck. Remember we said strangulation is like that's the one step away from killing somebody. This is how far this has escalated. This little girl, I, I found out later that she uh, grew up and found herself in an abusive relationship. Not an uncommon thing, by the way. Um, there is a, a level of normalcy to this, to folks who grow up in it, which is a danger to children, I would say. Found herself in an abusive relationship, eventually became an advocate. Um, not a believer to my knowledge, uh, but a friend of mine who's a believer and an advocate met her and it turns out that this young lady was at a training, being trained on uh, intervention as an advocate. And this 911 call was used as part of the training and she had no clue. So she's exposed immediately to uh, her own childhood. And it actually said it was a pretty therapeutic thing for her. It was a helpful thing for her in the long run. But um, yeah, and so now she uses her own recording to train folks. But this was an actual, actual recording. Some things there that... Um, are real striking. So there's some so sociological conditions, let's talk, or considerations, let's talk about the theological. Why is this important? Well, certainly it's important because sociologically kids are experiencing this kind of violence and we wanna be people of compassion and hope. But theologically, there's some things I think we should consider too. Number one is the incarnation. Jesus entered our world as an infant, did he not? He relates to our entire existence. He understands what it means to ask the question, are the children okay? It resounds with the heart of God. Jesus was a kid. We still believe that, right? I, I, I don't know why I'll have to ask him uh, one day when we're face to face, but wouldn't you love to have some information about what childhood Jesus was doing? Uh, would it be fascinating, I would think. I think what we would find is that he was a pretty normal kid. He was very extra uh, extraordinary as well. But I would say there's so many things that we would look and say, well, I did that. I skipped rocks, right? I played that game. The incarnation is not simply confined to Jesus' experienced adulthood, found himself upon the cross and rose from the dead. The incarnation is that he relates to our entire existence. So that as he's paying the penalty of our sin, he's doing so as a complete person, a entire existence. He identifies with us so fully that we can identify with him. So this not that children are second class citizens, I would hope, right? Christ saw fit to 
to be part of our world as a child. In a very humble, humble way, as you can see, Philippians 2, 6 through 11 communicates. Uh, Number two, theologically, there's some consideration here about children and the kingdom. Children and the kingdom. As you read the New Testament, and in particular the Gospels, in a culture that devalued children, Jesus prioritized them. I love this story. I'm sorry, I'm a softie for the Gospels. I just think Jesus is awesome. And I love this story when the disciples are like, would you stop bothering the man? Get away from me, kid, you bother me, right? Jesus has been, Jesus is like, don't turn them away. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is how we relate to God. Let the kids come to me. Don't hinder them. For the kingdom of heaven belongs to such of these. There's this unique connection between children and the kingdom. Let me ask you, as a believer, have you ever learned something theologically from a kid? Me too. Me too. There's some theological things to consider. One, Jesus came as a baby, and so childhood is important in that regard. And then the kingdom of God is uniquely connected to, to children. They see things. Don't you wish you could still see things that way? <laughs> that you weren't so tainted by things? There's also some theological considerations regarding the church and the vulnerable. The church and the vulnerable. You see, we have a responsibility to care for those in need. And children represent a significant class of what we would call the least of these. A significant class of the least of these. I love James 127. It, it, it was an interesting verse to me until, um, until we went on our adoption journey. My, my family adopted one of our children. We have one of each. One came by one means, one came by the other. And um, as we were starting our journey of adoption, this verse was one of those things that I kept clinging to, that religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. The church has a responsibility to the vulnerable, right? And kids who are experiencing domestic violence are being exposed to really, to use Jason's words, a demonic distortion of the way family is supposed to be. They're not getting a clear picture of what's supposed to happen. And many of these children belong to or are part of a family that claims to be believers. Or a father, for instance, who is a leader in the church. You know, we also have a biblical responsibility to children, uh, both fathers and church leaders. Uh, there should be some scriptures in your notes that apply to this. I've quoted 1 Timothy 5.8 already. If anyone does not provide for his own, especially those in his household, he's denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. I am amazed from the court side of things, how many men that I work with that try to use child support or the lack thereof as a means of controlling their spouse. And at the same time, claiming to be a believer. Well, the courts are not fair. I shouldn't be paying this. Whatever the excuse is, dude, that's set aside for your kids. Take your responsibility. I mean, even unbelievers do that, according to the passage. But it is so 
disheartening to see husbands and fathers who are so driven by control that they will intentionally, in order to intentionally harm their spouse, they will directly or indirectly harm their kids or use their kids as a weapon even to send messages or to create doubt. I once worked with a guy who, this is much more... um, seemingly innocent, but it was interesting uh, conversation that he and I had after he disclosed this to me. He uh, would have his kids on certain weekends. His partner, his wife would have them on certain weekends. They were in a separation while the courts were figuring some things out. Their churches were involved. Their church was involved. It was, you know, like you expect, it was a big mess. Different people were trying to get different moving parts to the puzzle. And he had the kids over one day and one of his kids said to him, dad, when, when will this be over? And the dad said, well, you need to ask your mother because she's the one causing all this. Now, he might have believed that, but it's, the intent behind it was to, I want mom to hear this, right? That's not a child's responsibility, is it? Kids are not marriage counselors or mediators. They're kids. Yeah, we expose them to, to quite a bit. All right, let's talk about some direct risk because I, I want to give you another vignette here in a moment. And then we're going to do some interaction. Yay! Because I'm hit the wall and I need y'all to talk a little bit. (laughs) Here's some direct risks to kids. Their emotional well-being. I think we could agree that growing up in a house that's tumultuous, whether it's a toxic couple relationship or more severe, a domestic abuse situation, It can hinder a child's development, their sense of safety, and their general happiness. Agreed? All right. You know that domestic violence is being shown to affect their social development. This makes sense when you start to think about the social connections that children are going to be asked to make as they grow older, like connections about family relationships, intimate relationships and peer relationships. Uh, I don't have permission to show you, uh, but I'd use a a video with our men's group and it's called Let's Play House. And it's to a brother and a sister. And the little boy says, hey, let's play house. And then it's black and white and it shows she's trying to cook at the play stove and he's got bills and he's throwing them on the ground and he knocks the food off the table and he beats his fist on the table. And it's to demonstrate the fact that, that there are instances in which children are mimicking the behaviors shown to them by their parents. And the idea here is that this is what we're modeling as normative. Uh, It can affect a child's social development. You can probably see then that it can affect an individual's intimate relationships in the future, can it not? So let's say my only experience, now granted, please don't hear me say this is causative. There's hope for everybody. There are plenty of people, I think identical twins are my favorite studies on this, right? You can have one twin who's like a complete addict and the other twin who's like a teetotaler. Same genetics, same environment, but they make different choices. Um, So there are children who are exposed to abuse that do not fall back into the pattern. But you do see the risk of how this behavior becoming normative can affect intimate relationships in the future. A young lady who witnesses her mother being abused, finding herself in a controlling relationship. 
as a young man who shows her attention that her father doesn't show her and takes care of her and comforts her when things are not going well at home, but also wants to know where she's at and where she's going to be. And she has to text back within a few minutes. Are you following? And even how we relate to each other, how children play, etc. It can affect how children behave at home and school. They might mimic the abusive behavior or they might be excessively compliant. And this is the weird thing about this world. They, they tend to see that young boys tend to, not always, remember contributive, not causative, young boys tend to lash out as they experience and witness abuse. Young girls tend to comply to the point of, I get straight A's, everything's clean. They're presenting problems in counseling, maybe things such as cutting, self-image. Do you see the connection? Usually those things that we counsel young women for um, based in a heart of control may, not always, but may come out of a family situation that's completely out of control. Are you, are you tracking with me? So there could be control issues, OCD, um, obsessive things. And as we dig and pull the rope, we might find that they've experienced either as a target of abuse or maybe they've witnessed abuse. Again, not causative, but certainly something we want to know as we're pulling the rope and gathering data. It will also, and I cannot stress this enough, I see this in the men that I work with, it will also, may also contribute to beliefs about violence including beliefs about entitlement or normalcy. With young men in particular, are you guys, maybe you guys, let me, let me present this and you tell me as counselors, those of you who are counseling, if you're finding this. I'm, I'm a Gen Xer, all right? Uh, you probably haven't heard of us in a while because there's this new group of kids and they're the same size as the boomers. I hate to break it to you, boomers, but I think you and the millennials are basically the same group of people. You're just separated <laughs> by... And like the four other Gen Xers said, amen. <laughs> you probably haven't heard of us in a while, but I have found that as I'm working with young men, men who are, men who are coming up behind me, maybe they're in their 20s or even early 30s, a real uh, misunderstanding of what it means to, be a, to have respect. Have you guys seen this? It's like the word got redefined somewhere that at one point in time, respect was about the way I carried myself Right, I show people respect, I be respectful, but it somewhere along the line transition to respect is something that I not only earn, but I take. And that if you contradict me or you confront me, you're disrespect. I'd pop in my jersey here. You're disrespecting me. I literally had a young man say that to me when I was challenging him. He said, why are you disrespecting me? I said, I don't know I was. I didn't know I was disrespecting you. In what ways was I not showing you respect? It was, it was a judgment. I was being judgmental by asking questions. So it's interesting with young men that I work with, no one has in many ways kind of shaped young men uh, in the same way that we might've shaped or seen them shaped in the past. So beliefs about entitlement, for instance, are completely different than say beliefs that my parents would have instilled in me. Is this making sense? So as I'm interacting with young men, it's interesting. I've got to do a lot more defining terms asking more questions because many of the men that I work with are far more entitled than say I was permitted to be. Now they're entitled about different things. Don't get me wrong. Every generation's entitled, 
but they're entitled to different things. And I found that young men are far more likely in our generation to be entitled to acts of violence. Because if I'm not getting my way, then I must be violent to get it. I hope that's making some sense. And we learn this in part from our home or from trial and error. I say that domestic violence is a learned behavior. It is a learned behavior. We either learn it because someone modeled it for us or we learned it through trial and error because it does work. If you're selfish and you want to get what you want, it will work for a while, (laughs) right? So we tend to learn it. We want to see as we're interviewing, interacting with young men and even young women, their beliefs about violence. Let me give you an example from the world of of victim care. Uh, Had a friend, was working with a young lady who was a victim, and uh, in the course of the interview, she said, well, it's not like he punched me in the face. Well, honey, what, what did he do? Right? She had minimized the violence to the point that, well, as long as I'm not being punched in the face, it's not violence. You'll see this with sexual assault victims too, right? Well, it wasn't like I was raped, and that's the victim-blaming culture, because I was drunk, right? Or because we had had sex before, which was a mistake or what have you, right? And all these justifications that are just not true, right? Because rape isn't about sex. It's about violence and control, same as domestic violence. So getting to the heart of these things, you'll probably need to really communicate some things about beliefs. And a lot of these are built in us as children. And they, they come off as normal. Um, there's some issues about physical health and well-being. So a child may be hurt directly due to abuse. So as you deal with child abuse, uh, this, you might actually see this. Um, there is a connection. Men who abuse their uh, children are more likely to abuse their spouse and vice versa. It doesn't, it's all, not always co-occurring. There are some men who treat their children very well, but they do control their spouse. But you should be aware of that. And then also know, as counselors and church workers and pastors, you're mandated reporters when it comes to children's violence against children. Uh, they can be affected due to direct abuse or ongoing stress and anxiety uh, that can threaten physical health. So I, I wanna, we're going to talk about that here in a minute. Hopefully you'll be able to, to see that a little more closely. Let's talk about how kids are exposed to it. They're exposed to violence the same way we're exposed to anything. But I just think it's fascinating to try to look through a kid's eyes because really what domestic violence is doing is it's asking a kid to process really foreign information, isn't it? Asking a kid to kind of process the world with no experience. That's one of the things I, you know, and my apologies to the culture, but I, I, I do think the culture is really struggling here when it comes to teenagers making identity decisions. It's a side note. But when I was a teenager, I was dumb. Anybody else? I didn't know who I was for a long time. And, you know, I want my kids to be happy and healthy, but I don't want them making major decisions. (laughs) But it is odd in our culture how many kids make major decisions. Some of them necessitated by us. Who am I going to live with? Where am I going to spend the holidays? All the way up to the gender identity issues that we're struggling with as a culture issues and decisions that kids should they do they need to be making those decisions side note back to reality okay here's some ways children may be drawn into the events by what they hear just like us children process information 
uh, based on what they hear. The difference is children are not necessarily equipped or prepared to translate, understand, or add value to what they're hearing. So they can hear shouting, name calling, screaming, calls for help, threats, sirens, other sounds associated with uh, the trauma they're experiencing like thunderstorms or dog barking, TV shows. You guys know what this is like, right? You're driving down the road and this song comes on from your childhood, come on, right? And you know every word to that song. And not only that, your mind races back, doesn't it? To an event. It's like clear as a bell. Like you haven't thought about that event in forever, right? And then Huey Lewis comes on, dating myself, and you're like, whoa, there I am. Ooh, what was I doing? What was I wearing, right? Well, negative negative or traumatic or poor experiences can have the same effect, can they not? By what we hear. And it's almost like we're burning some grooves in our brain. Our children can be affected by what they see. They can see their parent or caregiver being harmed physically or sexually. Remember I said 90% of the police associated responses, 90% of those one in 15 are eyewitnesses. They can see injuries, uh, broken or destroyed furniture or other belongings like the aftermath of a violent episode. They can see crying, looks of fear, looks of intimidation and helpers. And this is a, a sad reality. People help, helpers can be associated with negativity. Police, medical professionals, neighbors. It's almost if you come home from school and the neighbor's there, ah, what happened? Who's hurt? Children are drawn in just like us by what they smell. They can connect to abusive events through all their senses, including what they're smelling. Things like cooking, what's cooking, uh, antiseptic used to clean up or clean wounds, uh, seasonal smells. This one always gets me when I read this one because I love, I, you guys, I don't know if you guys have to deal with this, but uh, in West Virginia, we have all the seasons and... Um, uh, sometimes I hate it, but there are times, the fall in particular. Uh, if you have not been, come visit me in the fall when everything's orange and red and yellow and just lush. And the smell, it's amazing. I love the spring when it rains. Anybody else? Oh my goodness, that's the best. But we're saying that sometimes children we can even connect seasonal atmospheric things, smells to events like this. Uh, children process information just like we do by what they feel. They can sense tension in the air. They pick up on nonverbal cues. They create a sense of fear, anger, apprehension, or anxiety. Uh, do your kids have that radar? They feel tension? Oh, my kids do too. It's so annoying, especially when I'm in the wrong. <laughs> Man, kids pick up on it quick. They may not know what's wrong, but they know something's wrong. Now imagine the, the grand piano exercise and that's affecting someone you care for like your mom and you're living with that your entire childhood. How will that affect your anxiety level, your body, your digestive system? Does it have an effect? Yeah, sure does. By what they taste. Just like us, children associate memories by what they taste. They can associate with the taste of food that they were eating, uh, their own tears, Taste of blood if they were injured in the mouth. Um, you do hear stories quite a bit of children being injured. Uh, the most common injury is either direct 
abuse as a targeted victim of abuse. The most common intervention injury is associated with young men who challenge their father at a certain age. And you guys know uh, there's a huge difference between man strength and boy strength, right? I mean, even a teenage boy might get his licks in, but he's going to be overcome because man strength is just different. Um, and you do see some of this uh, young man in particular trying to uh, intervene. And then lastly, by the overall experience, children may experience abusive behavior such as being threatened, called names, hit, pushed, injured intentionally or accidentally. Um, emotions such as fear, anger, confusion, responsibility. Do you think children feel responsible for abuse? Yeah, they sure can. If you've ever worked with children who are suffering or struggling with their parents' divorce, you'll often hear them take responsibility for that. This is very similar in that children will take responsibility for abuse. This is where some of the, not always, remember, this is contributive, not causative, but you will be counseling maybe a teenager or a college-age student, and you'll be working through obsessive behaviors, compulsivity, perfectionism. Sometimes that could be associated with, if I can do everything right, if I can get everything perfect, then dad won't do this. He won't be upset. I have a friend who said the, her friends would come over to her house after school. They loved to hang out there because her mom was, would bake them things and let them do things. But as soon as they heard her dad's car door shut, like roaches in the light, she said, I never, can, I never understood why that was so powerful until she got a little bit older what they associated with dad coming home. They can experience ways of responding to abuse, such as calling 911, like our little girl in the first vignette, helping other children to hide. Uh, older siblings are often responsible for younger siblings during violent episodes, uh, and they will in many ways protect younger siblings. I told you about the 2020 video. Um, in that story, the oldest daughter denied the abuse ever happened, even in light of the videotape that showed her father pummeling her mother. She continued to defend her father. And you have to start speculating and wondering what's motivating that. And those are some questions you would love to ask her. Um, and is there any, um, anything regarding helping the other kids or trying to end this that goes along with that? Um, this can include distracting the abusive person, trying to stop or decrease the abuse, protecting the victim, or participating in the abuse. So it's not uncommon, say, for young men or young women to participate in the abusive behavior, name-calling. There are some benefits to this. It's similar to what we call the, uh, um, the cycle of abuse. I don't really teach it too often because it's not everyone's story. And I think you can easily communicate that the cycle of abuse is how it always happens. But there is some validity to it. And, and what we say when we say the cycle of abuse is that there's a tension building phase, right? That things are getting worse and worse and worse. Then there's the battering or the explosive phase. And then there's the honeymoon phase where everything's better. And victims will say that in that tension building phase, it's lasting so long and it's so unpredictable that they will try to incite the violence just to get to the honeymoon phase. Because if I can just get this over with, if you can just go ahead and hit me, then things will be back to normal and I don't have to live like this. It's 
similar in that children may speed up or try to speed up the process by engaging the abuse as well because they are so accustomed to that tension building as well. Well, if I join in, maybe we can get through this quicker. And it even becomes a way of trying to protect uh, as well. All right, let's, let's uh, play a little bit with a vignette. I'm gonna show you another vignette. This is a PSA that uh, probably, I can't remember when, it's, it's old. But to me, it's one of the most powerful examples of what we're talking about. So we're gonna watch this PSA together and then I'm gonna just ask you uh, what this child is experiencing in about a 30 second or one minute PSA. I'm gonna ask you to help me understand what this child may be experiencing and how it might contribute and uh, help us in our caregiving. Where's, where's dinner? Well, I thought you'd be home a couple of hours ago and but, I well, put everything away. What, so what is this? Pizza? You had just called me. I would have known what Dinner to... ready is pizza. Honey, please don't be so loud. Please don't. Let go of me! Get in the kitchen! No! Information call 1 800 end abuse. Not very long, is it? It's one of the most powerful PSAs that I've seen. It tends to get to me, especially when the little boy flinches. But based on what we just went through, all the ways that children can be drawn into the experience, let me ask you a few questions. Uh, first of all, let's start with basic observations. What are some observations regarding that video that you thought were important? Okay, so the kid was by himself on the top of the stairs. He's wearing PJs. So what are some assumptions we might make? He's probably supposed to be in bed. It's late. It's late. They think he's in bed. One of the most common responses I get from men that I work with when I do the impact on children exercises with them is they say, well, it's not like my children saw anything. They were in bed. And I usually push back and say, I think that's quite presumptuous. I think you need to really think about this. Is it possible that your children heard something? And let me ask you this. Would you do everything that you told me you did if your children were present? Well, no, of course not. Why? If it's justifiable and acceptable, then why is it unacceptable in front of your kids? Because they know it's wrong, right? So yeah, um, they probably think he's in bed. What else? What's that? No, he didn't go greet his dad. And I would guess, um, and again, this is all assumption, but do you think it's possible that he has been feeling the tension as the evening's gone on before dad gets home? I think with the dinner conversation, there's probably been some phone calls or something that's got him on edge, which, so he hears dad's car, or the door opens and he runs to the stairs. By the way, he flinched when he heard that. He knew it Yeah, he did. Yeah, he did. How, whoever set this PSA up, for this child, it was, did a brilliant job, I think. Um, it's very helpful for us. All right, let's go through some, some work here. What did he hear? Dad yelling at mom. Dad yelling at mom. What were some of the things dad was yelling about? Food. Food. All right. Do you, do you think, I'm just, by what you know about dad, you don't know much, do you think this is a common exchange? I think this has probably happened before. Yeah. 
Yeah. What? What's that? He heard something break. Yep. Yep. Good. He heard mom screaming and crying. Okay. Do you think this kid, um, this young man, and I'm just guessing, okay, we're just guessing, but is it possible that this young man has heard that argument about money before? Is dad, do you think it's possible, again, we don't know from 30 seconds, do you think it's possible that dad places a value on money, especially the money that mom spends? Yeah. Will that, could that, don't say will, contributive, not causative, could that affect him as he grows up and how he views money and relationships and yeah, think about that. Anything else he heard? Yes. So it's, it's a given, I think we all agree, that this PSA was intended to show us that he was anticipating the abuse, right? And what I love about it is I think it accurately depicts a young child's mentality. He's anticipating the abuse. He can't intervene, right? He, he might not be able to show his face because then he may be the target, depending on how angry dad is. But that proximity is really interesting. I'm going to leave my room. I'm going to set the top of the stairs so I can witness what's happening. Anything else that he's hearing? Yes. Okay, I, I think we'll get to the food thing here in a minute. But pizza, what a sad association. Pizza is awesome. <laughs> yes. Yep. Did y'all hear that? He's hearing dad accuse mom based on her lack of anticipating his needs. Is that not what dad's doing? Pizza for dinner? Don't you know what I like? Don't you know what should be? And, and you'll find this and with controlling and coercive people that they expect you to know what they want. They expect a certain level of conformity from you. If you don't meet it, you're going to be punished. And uh, you can. Very good observation. You can hear that accusation. Uh, And he's hearing that. At this point, I'm not sure he's ready to assimilate that, but if he gets a steady diet of it, that that could be a contributor. Anything else he's hearing? That's good. Yes, they're everywhere. Well, it's not what he's hearing, but the way he's sitting, I mean, he could have gone down the steps. Right, he's not going to engage. Yeah, that's about as far as he's willing to go. Yes? Uh, my question has to do with the correlation between bullying and uh, observing the child observing uh, the uh, abuse. Mm-hmm. Is it possible that he could be then developed into and become a bully later in life? So he would be exercising that uh, Yeah, sure. Remember, contributive, not causative, so we can't guarantee that this child's going to turn out a certain way or not a certain way. But certainly if he learns through modeling that violence and control gets you what you want, then he may easily revert to that. 
course, he may revert to the opposite too, which is complete passivity or even passive aggressive where he becomes uh, sarcastic or something. I didn't experience abuse. I'm sarcastic naturally. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So he's learning even how to respond to conflict. Uh, I'm assuming you guys would agree with me that this young man does not have the resources to interpret what's happening. He knows some, but he knows only some in part because he's a little boy. Right? Okay. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the mom's pleading. Uh, with the dad for a couple of things, but let's go with the keep it down. The idea of de-escalating, the, the mother's trying to de-escalate the situation in large part, probably for the sake of the little boy. But also it, it is showing that two sides to a coin, which is really interesting. So back to the development issue, the little boy may or may not assimilate this at this point, but it does show the, the power and the weak, right? Strength and weakness. And it can display mom is very weak, especially if you fall into this cultural entitlement nonsense that men are supposed to be like macho, strong, you know, in control of everything nonsense, right? I mean, he may very well grow up with, well, that's weak. You know, I'm not going to be like that. And we see that with some victims who their mother was very passive and they're like, I'm not going to be treated like that. I'm going to get my licks in. And they end up in our women's group uh, for the most part. What about... Um, so that's some of the things he's hearing. What's he seeing? This is one of my favorites. What's he seeing? Shadows. I don't know about y'all. I was a kid once. Shadows are scary, right? They're big. They're weird. And I'm always fascinated by this, this vignette. The very first thing is people always recognize how he's seeing these shadows, these larger than life afterthoughts of things. And I, I think that is a very scary image for me and I'm 40 years old. <laughs> so for a little boy, that's scary. Is he seeing anything else? His toy. His toy he's very connected to that truck. Um, again, whoever uh, directed and produced this did a great job. But yeah, he's very connected to his truck and you can see he's engaged in two worlds, is he not? It's like the truck is grounding him, but he's also connected to what's happening down the stairs. I don't know that there's much more. Anything else he's seeing? Well, not so much what he saw, but this realized the beginning is this panning of the family photos. So there's an implication. This is a lovely intact family, and the staircase is lovely. Yeah, I don't know any um, public abusers. Meaning I don't, I've not yet met a man who's coercive and controlling that goes, you know what, I'm going to start a blog about the ways in which it is such a secret sin and it's dependent upon his control to keep it that way. So mom's got to participate, children have to participate, uh, some ways neighbors have to participate. So yeah, I would say their house probably also has to be well-maintained. Uh, considering if he's going to throw a fit about pizza, he's probably got some other demands with the muggers. Um, anything else he's seeing?
Yeah. And this is a very good point. So mom comes in to comfort him. Everything's okay. Don't worry. But what, what may be visibly uh, on her face? Yeah, she's been smacked, so she might be a swollen face, bloody lip, all of this. So the comforting words have kind of this, thanks, Mom. Yeah. Okay. Very good. What about, um, what about what they smell? Is this child drawn in by a smell? Possibly. Pizza! Again, what a sad reality that pizza then could be associated with this. Now, granted, I'm not saying that every time this kid eats pizza, he's going to be whisked back into, but I do want to play, paint this scenario. Three months go by, dad has not come home in time for dinner, and he's put to bed, and it's late, and mom orders a pizza. And he hears the exchange with the pizza man, and he smells the pizza. Anybody? Yeah, the tension might build. There could be no domestic violence that night, but certainly if I was a kid, I'd be like, whoa, last time this was bad. Any other smells? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, bath time. There could be some bath time smells. Now again, we're not saying that he's going to want to be dirty all the time. He is a boy, so he's going to be want to be dirty all the time. But um, yeah, there, there could be some association there for sure. Anything else? Bueller? Anyone? Bueller? No one? Okay. Good. Four of you get it. My goal is really to tell jokes to the point that no one laughs at the end of the day. <laughs> and I'm completely isolated from you. That's my humor. Okay. What's our, um, what's our little friend feeling? We've talked about the tension, but what else is he feeling? Fear. Fear. He could be numb. He could be numb. He could be feeling nothing. So I think the, the flinch lets us say that he was at the very least surprised, um, which we go down this whole rabbit trail of speculation, but it, it's possible this could be the first time it's escalated to physical force. Um, I kind of feel like he's probably experienced this time and time again, and he knows what's next. I think it's probably escalated beyond this before. Right. Yeah, I'm probably maybe in tears. What's going on, you know? Yes. Yeah. Do you guys hear that? He feels love for his father. Can you imagine? I mean, really, this is true, right? Do you think this little boy loves his dad? I would hope so. This is, this is one of those things that it's just, not only is it unfair for kids, it's unreasonable for kids to try to balance um, the right things in life with the things that we're experiencing. This little boy, we can assume, loves his dad. And now he loves his mom too, doesn't he? Yeah. It's not fair. He shouldn't be in this situation. It's not right. Yes. Yeah. Um, I'm, in the vignette, we don't get a whole lot of a picture of this, but it's quite possible that he's feeling guilt or shame. Um, again, remember, kids are trying to process information based upon the information that they have. So we talked earlier about young people developing things like OCD and compulsive uh, behaviors in part because of if I can do things perfectly when I'm a kid, maybe this will fix it. Uh, he may have a system in place where, you know, if I do this, this, and this, then dad will never hurt mom. Some kind of magical whatever. 
Or he, maybe he was an unruly kid that day and mom had to call dad's work to tell him what he did and he's somehow associating that. So yeah, we shouldn't rule that out, that kids can feel guilt for behavior that their, their parents are doing. Yes. I think he's has, yeah, I think fear for his mom. I think it'd be interesting to have a conversation with him as an adult, if we could go back and see this vignette and then get his thoughts, because he may not be able to process what, he, what he's even feeling, right? He may be fearful for his mom, but not know what that is. He may associate it with fear for himself. Any other feelings? That was my childhood. I'm sorry to hear that. Absolutely, that's fair. I think both of those are fair statements because we're, we're talking about children trying to process information, right? And so, yeah, so our sister here said that that was her childhood and, and her response was a little different than the response we had about loving her father. She actually wished her mother would leave and on some occasions wished harm on her father. Is that what you were saying? So she didn't have a loving relationship with her father and sometimes hated his behavior, which that's really a good example of that tug of war, isn't it? Between I love the person and I just am torn by what you're doing. And then she also shared with us that she has a great relationship with her dad today, right? And they're talking even today. So praise the Lord for that and praise the Lord that you're safe and doing well today. So, but certainly when you talk about feelings and children, come on, kids, You've tried to get that out of a kid, haven't you, right? What are you feeling? <laughs> We're all over the place, aren't we? Yeah. Yes, sir. Maybe he's feeling the Maybe. He definitely is limited at this age. I do think it's fun to speculate, um, and I wish they had alternate PSAs where maybe he's a teenager and how that might play out. Uh, we show some that I'm not permitted to show to you guys to our men's group. And there's one in particular where a young man is actually playing his parents against each other. You guys have, if you've had kids more than 10 minutes, right? They've played you against each other. Instead of being a team, the dad becomes accusatory towards the mom and ends up, the son ends up trying to intervene and he gets attacked. Um, You know, and then the mom even says, when, when the young man tries to, solidify things with his mom. The mom even says to him, this is the whole reason we started this was because of you, you know? So even mom participating. Yeah. You know, depending on how significant the manipulation is, uh, he could be angry at his mom. Yeah. I mean, he could really be believing that this is his mom's fault. Not uncommon to hear children as they get older say, you know, because mom didn't leave, mom wouldn't say anything, mom wouldn't comply. They could even come back to those beliefs of entitlement, right? And even say, well, if mom just did what he asked, it would be okay. So, I mean, we've got a lot of complex things here, don't we? And we've got this, that's what we are, is complex body, soul, spirit beings. So we're going to have a lot of complexities here. Yes. 
males and he does to males because this is females provide the care mm -hmm. and the safety that he that he desires and the men providing stability and chaos. Yeah, so it's possible that he could identify more with mom than he could with dad and then that could cause that rift in their relationships that he and dad. Of course, the opposite's true as well. And that's one of the things why I say contributive, not causative. We've got to kind of see how these things play out. It'd be better if there was no violence in the home, <laughs> right? That's kind of the goal. Um, what about tasting? Is he tasting anything? Pizza. <laughs> Pizza. He tasted it a while ago, hopefully. Um, Maybe not a whole lot going on here. Maybe his tears if he cries. But uh, the odd thing about this vignette is he doesn't cry, does he? Which says a lot too. Uh, and then, of course, we said children uh, process information by what they experience. And um, so there could be all kinds of experiences that he's dealing with um, associated with these incidents. And in future and further instance. So we talk about this as a pattern, Right. Uh, this is an isolated. We've got a snapshot of what he's experiencing in a pattern. So there could be other things associated with different events, such as people helpers like police and emergency per personnel or, or a pet or something along those lines. Yes? Would it be common behavior if a child, say like that, is like a pirate under with a, a detached and maybe pretend everything was good? Say he was on a stereo with a truck. Yeah. Yeah, so it detach, det, yeah, detachment's possible. I think, the, I think the goal here is, and maybe we're seeing this, is that there's all kinds of outcomes because people are complicated, right? And maybe, maybe, just maybe, as we've been working through these things today, um, you've seen that domestic abuse, there is no one-size-fits-all. That diagnosing and responding and intervening takes a lot of time, energy, and effort. When I first got involved in biblical counseling, one of the things I loved about it as a 22-year-old young man was, whoa, this only takes eight weeks. <laughs> Excellent. Cha-ching, cha-ching, pushing them through. But as you can imagine, cases like the one we're talking about can extend out for a long period of time, can they not? I also want to make sure that we're clear that, uh, again, this young man... Um, may be negatively affected by what he's experiencing now, but the hope of the gospel is so, so wide and so deep um, that it's not, it is not creating or causing him or putting him into a label or a pigeonhole that he'll never escape from. Right? And, and we, do live in, we do live in a society in many ways, in a culture in many ways that says, you know, once a victim, always a victim. This young man, if if he encounters the living God, has so much hope, as does his mom, right? And I'll go one step further, as does his dad. If his dad can experience uh, the redemptive nature of the gospel, their whole life can change. Generationally, it can change. You know, I'm not a big generational sin guy, <laughs> right? But I do think you know those families, don't you? That the sins of the father carry on to the sins of the son, this normative, this is the way life is. And you just pray, Lord, break that cycle. This is the work of intervention and prevention. Is we want to see the cycle broken in such a way that families, not just families are restored, but that God's glorified. Because I mean, there's a lot of work that, 
restores marriages, but doesn't work on hearts. Agreed? I mean, there's a lot of quick fixes to marriages that leave people in very deadly and dangerous situations. That's not what we're promoting. We're promoting the redemptive nature of the gospel that is restorative for every aspect of your life. That includes your marriage, right? There can be hope there, but it begins with the transformation of the heart. I'm going to let you go a little bit early because I want to be your favorite speaker, one. (laughs) And two, I'm out of notes. I mean, I can teach you more, but that's what tomorrow's for. So quick commercial. Uh, Not really, but I'll be part of the breakouts tomorrow. So I'll probably see some of you guys around. Uh, What I would like to do, and I know this might might be a little different. I don't know how we usually do things here. This is my first time here. Um, It's my first time at a pre-conference. So what I would like to do, and I, I like to end this session this way. I know you guys know how I feel about this topic because I've been teaching you all day about it. I wonder, could I get a volunteer who would just pray for us, thank God for what we've learned today, and ask his blessing as we, we move forward? Would anybody be willing to volunteer for us today? Okay, thank you. Amen. God bless you guys. Thank you. Copyright 2017, IBCD. All rights reserved. More free resources are available at www.ibcd.org.